Hey there, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the snow room. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we're talking to Dan Moore. Dan, welcome back. Hello, thanks for having me. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Uh, do you want to just remind people who you are and why we like you, and then we can jump in and talk about off? Sure, sure. So uh, my name's Dan Moore. I'm head of DevRel at a company called FusionAuth. And what we do is provide an auth service, kind of like Auth0 or Okta, where you mm -hmm. can outsource some of the complexity of login, forgot password, et cetera, and focus on your, um, your application. Awesome. So, um, yeah, we, we were emailing back and forth about WebAuthn. Um, I'll admit I've kind of skimmed your articles about what it is and what it does. I, I'm wondering if you can kind of give the 10,000 foot view though, for our listeners so that they, understand what we're going to talk about and we talk about how to use it you know maybe what some of the trade-offs are and stuff like that sure yeah so the ten thousand foot view is really web Austin is a standard that's been promulgated by the w3c that is exists and is implemented by all major browsers that exposes strong forms of authentication that are typically hardware based to the web browser so if you've ever used Face ID to unlock your phone or Touch ID or Windows Hello or Android Fingerprint, that's all biometric or um, other kinds of authentication that are really hardware-based. They're tied to your phone. Uh, YubiKey is another example. And WebAuthn mm -hmm. lets you access that piece of hardware through a standardized interface that's basically just writing JavaScript. So that's the big win is all your web applications, all your mobile applications uh, that, that are kind of based on, you know, if they're a PWA, they can get access to that same strong form of authentication that you use to unlock your, your phone right now. Right. Makes sense. So it sounds like it's pretty flexible. You can kind of go in a lot of different directions with it. I mean... At the end of the day, it's another it's it's a replacement for username and password or an augmentation of it. Um, and I think that the real win is again just tying back to making the well the two things. One is it's more secure and it's much more difficult to fish. Some people say it's mm -hmm. impossible to fish, and the other uh, as as composed like as opposed to like an SMS or something like that. Um, and the other thing is just removing friction. Uh, it's a lot easier to you know touch your fingerprint to the fingerprint. Um, device than it is to enter your username and password to log into something. So I've only ever seen one website that said that I could log in with WebAuthn and I couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, I think it basically got me, I, I think what happened was I said, oh, this looks cool. I'll log, log in with WebAuth. And then it said, you don't have WebAuth set up. And there was no indication of 
what to do. So I just, you know, logged in with Google because, eh. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and so I will say like this was standardized in 2018 and I've seen talks and I've seen um, companies kind of pushing this out. I know um, Intuit has done this for at least some of their applications. If you go to Best Buy, you can actually see login with WebAuthn. Uh, no, they've changed it. Now it's login with passkeys, I believe. Uh, and th that's actually worth digging into a little bit. Passkeys are kind of the consumer-facing name for this. WebAuthn is the developer-facing name. So when mm. you're planning, trying to build this, you want to Google, hey, how do I build this with WebAuthn? When you're marketing it to your customers, you want to say login with a passkey. That sounds and, really smart. I'm yeah. so glad that they did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think Apple and Google pushed them a little bit. I think Apple's pushed them a lot towards that terminology. And I think it's it's fantastic. Uh, and Google and Apple have both had presentations, I think, in 2021 about this technology. So it's, it's coming up. Uh, I will not say, I think it's probably in the, if you think about the crossing the chasm terminology, it's probably in the early adopters phase, maybe moving a little bit towards the early majority. Uh, but we, you know, the reason why I'm out on this podcast is we just implemented this in FusionAuth. And so mm -hmm. we want, frankly, there's two reasons. One, I, I want you to know about FusionAuth and maybe choose to use our implementation. But second is, I think everyone should at least evaluate this. For if you're doing consumer applications, and you want people to have an easier logging experience, you should absolutely look at this. Now, AJ, sounds like you kind of caught some of the rough edges, and that could be part of kind of where this is. Um, there's, we, we can dig into kind of how you can use WebAuthn if, it, if, if you all want to, but... Uh, I'd love to. It's like any other technology, right? Like, it can be used for good or, or for evil. Yes, those are the best technologies. Technologies that can only be used for good are typically only used for evil. <laughs> trusted platform hardware for example yeah I'm, I'm gonna derail us back onto the topic though um and what i what i'd like to start with because a lot of times we kind of get really deep into the technical details but uh, where i really like to start now that we've kind of gotten an idea of what it is and kind of what it does is what's the value proposition i mean for developers you know, let's say I'm I'm building an app, right? Or I work for a company that's, you know, building an app. Um, why would I want to adopt WebAuthn, right? Sure. Yeah. So I unfortunately don't have any hard numbers, right? So yeah. I can, I will actually take it to do to look at them, um, look for some hard numbers. Uh, and... Uh, then we can put them on the links page afterwards. But mm -hmm. what we see are there really two main purposes. The first is if you have uh, high security needs, um, this could be something like for a banking application or something like that, where mm -hmm. uh, the, the the possibility of someone phishing you is going to have real significant negative ramifications. So WebAuthn can be used as a single factor, right? So it's the only thing that provides login or it can be a, a multi-factor solution the same way as a push notification or an SMS code. But the difference is because of the implementation details, it is really, really hard to fish. Uh, they've taken a lot of things that, that they've um, seen over the past 10 years in terms of how attackers attack these kind of codes and they've built it on top of public-private public key cryptography and the private key is, is stored securely, right? on a device, mm -hmm. uh, a YubiKey or, or a phone or something. And so it's really hard to fish. So security is the is one business driver. The second right. 
for me is is ease of use. And again, I, I keep coming back to my first experience with WebAuthn in our implementation. I logged in and basically registered with an account, and then I set up WebAuthn, which AJ, to your point, you know, we've tried to make simpler, but it is not super intuitive. But once you've set it up once, I what could log in. What does setting it up mean? Uh, well, let me let me just finish this thought, and then I will talk to you about yeah, what yeah. setting up means. Because that, yeah, that was like, my next question anyway. Yeah, so totally, totally, yes, yes, that's great. Um, uh, and then I was able to log in with a just touching my fingerprint to my Android mm-hmm. phone, and you know it's not perfect, right? Like sometimes my Android phone, the fingerprint reader gets dirty, and so I need to do something about that. But especially when you're on a mobile device, uh, I don't like to have my browser save my passwords. So maybe that's just me, but. Uh, being able to log in with a, with a fingerprint just made a much smoother experience. So I think those are the two main business drivers. I would say as a developer, like, am I interested in higher security or with, you know, and, and to be fair, there's a little bit of friction with both of these, or am I interested in a better consumer experience once they've, once they've gone through the registration process. So should we talk about the registration process? Yeah, that, that, that's where I want to go next. Cause yeah, it makes sense. You're not, it's harder to fish because you're not sending somebody to a page where it's, Hey, enter your username and password to get the thing that I told you was wrong. That's not wrong because I'm a liar and I'm trying to get your username and password. So, you know, the security, yeah, maybe the ease of use. Cause yeah, sometimes it is easier to just authenticate it on my phone, even though I'm trying to get on on my computer. Sometimes it's a little inconvenient too, but all of this makes sense to me as far as, you know, providing security and maybe a certain level of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ease of use. And so um, there's there's an actual word for that, but I can't think of it at the moment. So uh, convenience, that's what I was looking for. So anyway, so yeah. So let's say that I decide, you know what? This is what I want to do. You know, get away from the username, password kind of setup. Um, yeah, how do I put this into my app? Sure. So there's... Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, the first is you need to decide how you want to use it. And there's three kind of main big picture uh, options. The first is you can use it as a second factor of authentication, right? which we are all pretty familiar mm-hmm. with, right? Google Authenticator or whatnot. You could use it as a, what we call re-authentication, which is where someone has an account already and they've signed up and they just want to add this as another means of authentication. Um, you could think of that the same as someone putting an email address on their account so that they can get a magic link, right? It's just another way of authenticating someone. Right. Um, and the third is you use it for uh, what's called, we we call it, um, it's called, uh, how do I put this? It's called bootstrapping, I believe, or discoverable discoverable credentials where the, the um, username basically your identity is tied to the WebAuthn device, and that is only supported by uh, uh, some uh, um, WebAuthn devices. So I'm not going to talk too much about that. So let's talk about the reauthentication workflow because that's probably the one that most of your users or listeners will will think about implementing first. And the way that works is I sign up the way I normally would, right? Like I use Google or I use whatever. Um, I sign up with username and password, and then I go to my account and I say, I want to add a WebAuthn key. And then I mm-hmm. click a button and then the brow- JavaScript browser APIs are called. And then it prompts me to, to um, put a fingerprint on my fingerprint reader. 
And then that gets recorded in my device and then also on the website. And then the very next time I come through, you can prompt that user and say, and basically you drop a cookie, right? In the web world, or you put a preference. Um, well, in the web world, you drop a cookie. And then when your website sees that cookie, you can say, hey, do you want to authenticate with WebAuthn? They put their finger on the fingerprint reader and then they are magically logged in. They don't have to re-enter their username and password ever again. Now, this is on that single browser, on that single device. So you can set right. up multiple different ones. Now, um, again, this gets to like some of the, oh, there's there's uh, there's actually, a, uh, this is WebAuthn 2 I'm talking about. There's actually a WebAuthn 3 that talks about how you can kind of deal with that and work across different devices. Was but there ever still, a WebAuthn 1? What happened to WebAuthn 1? Yeah, I I don't I don't know I know that there was um, some other passwordless uh, stuff around the same technology that was done without the W three C by an organization called Fido, which that might have been WebAuthn and one I'm I'm not really sure. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, all of us that have Macs have fingerprint scanners. I have never, outside of maybe Safari, uh, paying for something through Apple, I don't think I've ever had the fingerprint scanner um, be integrated with a website. Is that even, does Apple even allow Brave and Firefox and whatever to use the fingerprint scanner? Or would I have to, to buy one of these $150, you know, weirdo looking? I can't tell if it's an authentic company or not because I've never heard of it before things off Amazon. Uh, the answer is you can absolutely use Touch ID on your Mac with Web, Web, with WebAuthn to log into web apps if it's been properly implemented. Yes. So because of the support for the standard, all the browsers, which include Safari, Brave, uh, Firefox, although not 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 so great on mobile, um, Chrome, Edge, they all implement this thing. So they've taken care of kind of the underlying guts and talking to the Touch ID uh, or the fingerprint scanner, the hardware that's built into your computer, and you just need to format the request correctly, go through this registration process, and then next time someone comes in, prompt them to go through the, the authentication process. I want to use Face ID. That way my kids can authenticate me in my sleep. Um, <laughs> Careful what you wish for, Charles. Right? <laughs> Dad, I want this video game. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious as, as we kind of pull this together. So you said that keys are generated on both ends or, you know, the key. Anyway, there's, a, there's an asymmetric key pair, right? Correct. That, that's where I was trying to go to. And so when it generates that key pair, um, one end stores the private key, the other end stores the public key. Correct. And so I'm assuming, because a lot of times uh, these technologies require some kind of server backend-ish or something like that, right? And we have a lot of listeners that, yeah, that, you know, Node.js, right? So the backend will handle a lot of this stuff and you just have to have the right library for it. And I'll ask you about that in a second. But is this something that we can also do on apps that mostly function on the front end, right? I'm thinking like a Next.js or something like that, where um, effectively it's, I've got a database as a service 
And I mean, that's pretty much it, you know? Sure. So I, I don't have intense familiarity with Next.js, but as long as you have some server-side data store, then you're going to be okay. Well, okay. be careful here. I expect you'll be okay because you can store the, the public key there, right? The private key always stays mm-hmm. on the authenticator. Well, sorry, I just brought, brought a new piece of jargon. jargon. Um, the Touch ID, the computer that offers Touch ID, the phone that offers Face ID, uh, et cetera, those are called authenticators because they're right. kind of the piece that generates the private key and then publishes the public key up to right. the website. So the website just has to hold the public key, which actually, that's another advantage for all your listeners is that you don't have to worry about someone breaking into your website and stealing your public the public keys because they they're, don't have any value. They're public keys. Right. Um, but yes, so that is, that is, you have to have some server-side storage. So effectively, what, what you're saying then is whether I'm having it send back the, because it'll send me the public key and then it'll also send me whatever encrypted payload it has for authenticating the user, right? Um, and so at the end of the day, whether I have Node.js handle that or whether my front-end library, you know, does some work on it and then passes that information back to my Firebase or something, either way, that works fine. Again, I haven't implemented this, but there's no underlying technical reason why it wouldn't work fine. Okay. Right? If you can store you can store a user's first name, you can store the the public key that represents that user in the same space. Hey, so it turns out that there is a test site, webauthn.io, and you can use Touch ID in Chrome. I think the reason that I had never seen it before is because I have one of those little Fido keys because I got it through the GitHub developer program. And um, uh, I I think that it just wasn't being implemented uh, in most places. And so when I went to add my Fido key to my Google account, I think it actually does. The option is called, it's not called Touch ID. The option is called this device. And I never made the connection that that was Touch ID before because the other two options in the list were like, you know, security key. And I don't even remember what the other option was, but it was it was stuff where it's like, yeah, this is the thing that I know. And the other two things were like, I don't even know if I have those. But it's called it's called this device is is the name of the option. They need to rename that to Touch ID when it's Touch ID so that people know it's Touch ID. Yeah, I mean, and some of that is out of, websites control right like some that could be just apple like giving you a list of of possible capable it's it's uh brave brave Brave. is giving well i mean chromium chromium is not being specific to what what the options are yeah Mm -hmm. i'm sure chromium would be happy to take a pull request from you aj Oh, I don't think so. I'm sure I'm pretty sure I'm I'm on their their no fly list. You know, now that you've mentioned Chromium, I'm a little curious too. then if this works there, would this not also work with Electron, right? With which is effectively Chromium with Node. I would think that if they chose to implement the Electron, yeah, I would think so. That's Um, how you do phishing right there. You get the Electron app so that people could be entering in. They think it's for one website, but it's actually coming from an iframe from Electron. That's that's how you exploit this. Okay, so talk. speaking of that specifically, yeah, how does WebAuthn tell you I am 
website A and not website B because you could man in the middle of this thing if you, if yeah. you don't have a way to authenticate it, right? And they've actually done a little bit of thinking about that. So one, WebSN APIs only work over SSL. And then mm-hmm. two, every, you know, remember that registration process I had you walk through? Like basically you are tying that private key that's stored on the device, on the authenticator to a host name. So, you know, if I set up with example.com and then I I have my users register on example.com, they, and then I change my host name to, you know, foo.com, they have to re-register all their web authentic stuff. So you can't Mm -hmm. really fish in the same way, right? You can't use, um, example.com and then example like with a, like a, a Unicode, a Unicode uh, right. looks the same because the, the software is going to recognize that and not send on the the sign response basically. So hmm. there's protection around that, you know, and that's one of the things I think is just a reflection of WebAuthn being a relatively new standard. You can make it HTTP 1.1. You couldn't say it has to be over TOS because back then, you know, no, not many people were using it. In 2017, 2018, when this was being written, we started to see all of the, you know, TLS support across the, across the web. So uh, an- another little hiccup, it, it gives you the option to scan a QR code with your phone. That doesn't work. It it needs some sort of special app that iOS doesn't have. So it's not it's not the standard authenticator specification. It's something different, which makes sense because the authenticator is pretty weak if you're considering it for primary authentication. Sorry, I'm just looking up this webauthn.io site because I've there's a number of sites out there that'll help. This is part of this is by Duo, so you know um, I don't know how up to date this is or how great this is. It looks pretty solid from here, but um, I haven't I haven't looked at this so. Um, I, I will say again, like just kind of speaking back, like I think that this is in the early adopter slash early majority phase. I think it's going to be really great. I think that there are some, you know, AJ, you've already encountered some user experience issues. Um, so I think that you want to think about, you know, as a developer, like what's the point where I want to jump on board this? And, you know, can I leverage libraries or authentication servers that will help me accelerate that? Mm. Because, uh, you know, we all know that an open source library with a lot of eyes on it or, or a product with a lot of eyes on it will probably be able to push things forward faster to deal with some of these kind of, you know, uh, roadblocks or issues. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area 
on GatherTown. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to GatherTown and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and and get to know people across the world. Uh, One thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Well, I think it's it's just like when browsers started implementing any security at all for the very first time, and you'd have these pop-ups, would you like X to be able to access your camera? And then there was the pre-pop-up, which I still think is the right idea, both on the phone and the browser. The pre-pop pop-up says, you know, in order to use this feature, we need access to your camera. Do you want to ask the browser for access to your camera? Ask for access, you know, so you have the double confirm and then it pops up with the browser dialogue, which is ambiguous and unclear. I think the same thing needs to happen here. If somebody selects uh, passkey, then they need to say, you know, before they prompt the passkey prompt, they need to educate the user. um, Touch ID will be called this device. Or, uh, you know, you, you can, they, they need to, they need to know, they need to either be able to provide something, you know, like, a like these are the, the list of options of web auth that I want to allow. I want to allow QR. I want to allow touch ID. I want to allow, um, FIDO keys or something like that. But somehow if they can't do that, they just have to educate the user beforehand. Cause I'm not going to know that a picture of a screen that says this device is touch ID because touch ID is on my keyboard, not on my screen. And I'm not, I'm not going to know that I have to have some sort of special app on my phone. If it says authenticate via QR, because to everyone in the world who's ever used that, well, except for China where they have their own standard, but for everybody in the U S that means the authenticator spec, which uh, I forget what the RFC number is on that, but the same thing that Google and Authy and Facebook. Et, et oh, you're talking about TOTP, that stuff? Yeah, TOTP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. That, the authenticator. Well, I call it the authenticator spec because that's what it, uh, the average person doesn't know what TOTP is, but they, the average person is likely to know what an authenticator app is if they do anything where its security is required as part of one of their logins. And, and I think that points to like, I think that that's why re-authentication is the best workflow to start out with, right? Because you can now, you can say, hey, do you want an easier way to log in? And then you can kind of walk people through the step because I think you're right, AJ, until we get used to this as consumers, it's going to be a little bit weird. It's going to be a little bit awkward. And I think the win is there in terms of security, in terms of smooth user experience once you actually struggle through things to get it set up. But until then, um, it is kind of a new thing. I haven't seen that QR code before, uh, but um, you know, I definitely know that we spent a lot of time, the team, I didn't write any code on this, but the team spent a lot of time thinking about like, what's the easiest way for people to, to get WebAuthn enabled for their authentication sites, for their login pages. 
And we just released the first version. So I'm sure we're going to do some refinement around this because I think it is relatively new and relatively, um, you know, we're going to learn, I think we, Fusion Auth, but we, the, the developer community is going to learn a ton about this because I, I, I do think that the benefits are enough that this is coming down the pike. Yeah, one thing that you've kind of implied there too with what you're saying that I want to just bring up. Um, so, And, and I'm going to, uh, illustrate this with another example. Uh, so I was on Twitter this morning, just kind of browsing, you know, uh, before I got in an argument about politics, right? Because that's what Twitter's actually for. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm halfway joking. It was with a high school friend of mine and we were just having a back and forth. But anyway, uh, somebody had posted that Node.js, it basically said Node.js was a mistake, right? And then, you know, the, the follow-on uh, was effectively... Well, I actually use it every day. And what I see in, in a lot of cases is that something like WebAuthn, you know, it has enough security wins to make it worth it, right? Just kind of like Node.js early on. It gave people some options to use JavaScript in a way that they hadn't been using it before and to do some useful stuff with it, right? It wasn't the ideal tool, but it was something there. And yeah, I think we're going to progress into just as we have to get to WebAuthn or to the current version of Node, we're going to progress into something that fits the needs for most people. And so, yeah, this might still be a little bit clunky. It might still be a little bit, you know, weird to set up. But at the end of the day, it sounds like the security wins are at least worth considering and may very well be worth the trade-off for you as, as an app builder. And at the same time, um, yeah, we may get WebAuthn3 that actually solves some of the issues we are going to wind up having with WebAuthn2 and at the same time, um, you know, make everybody's life a little bit easier because, yeah, you have heightened security and, and better ease of use. Yep. And uh, one other thing, I kind of talked about the host name mapping and the TLS stuff um, where you can't use it over non-TLS websites. Another thing that's kind of tied to it is that it really does require a physical person to press a button right it's uh, if someone prompts me for a web authentic if i if you if i get prompted for a web authentic um you know uh login to authenticate there is no code i can send to somebody else there's no mm -hmm. you know uh way that i can share that with anybody who's not physically present with me and i can't even see the private key right because that's kind of hidden on the device right. and i can't share that so um that's just another one of the security benefits that I think they've, they've looked at the issues and they're trying to ameliorate some of the issues that have you know, come up around authentication. Yeah, one thing that you just brought up that's also interesting with this is that um, in some cases, like I'm using LastPass, for example, for some stuff, right? And it's because I have virtual assistants and audio editors and people that need access to my stuff that's protected by a password. And I could kind of see the need for something like that going away to a certain extent because it's send an authentication request to this person, right, over email or, you know, text, or maybe you have some secure chat or something that you're going to send it to them. They follow that link. They set up their own authentication. And, you know, and then it just allows the dual login a as a way of managing stuff, right? And so you get, you get rid of that in... I, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of dreaming of the day where that's a thing because 
The other thing that I run into is that there are a lot of SaaS products out there that I use and they want to charge you per seat, per login, per user, you know, whatever. And well, that's how I would they get love you. to be able to just say, authorize any of these. And then if, you know, if they, they wind up, you know, moving on to another place to work, then, you know, then I can just turn it off. I can just turn off that access. Well, I got some bad news for you, Charles. I mean, they'll, they'll probably just charge per web off and passkey probably associated with it right like they gotta they gotta feed their kids too but no um yeah i think that is a, a, a an interesting way to think about it is as a you could have one account that has multiple different pass keys mm-hmm. and you still control the password yeah. right mm-hmm. and then at the end of the day you can add or remove those pass keys by yeah. going through the registration but, process but but i can't i can't share my own you know biometric or whatever web authent is connecting to I can't share that with anyone else. You know, I can't say, oh, here's my thumbprint, right? Right. I mean, again, that's where WebAuthn3 kind of comes in. Uh, and uh, Apple's working on some of that, right, to share uh, the the private sure, key so. that's generated by the, the well, right. I don't know the full details of it, but like basically the idea is they want you to be able to log in on the Mac and then be able to log, be logged in on the, the iOS device mm-hmm. or, or vice versa. Um, and that, you know, inevitably is going to involve some kind of secure stuff happening over the over the you know to a centralized server that apple will control and run i can't speak too much to that i know that is one of the um things that they're trying to fix about the wealth and two spec or improve you know an example is you know if you set things up as with your mac and you and you only have your touch id to log in and then your touch ID device gets broken, or you you know set up on your phone, oh, yeah. and then you lose your phone, um, you're kind of up a creek, right? So mm-hmm. that's one of the things that you want to make sure that any web authentication solution you have allows you to allows you to put in two or more pass keys, and make sure that you encourage all your users to do that. In fact, I don't know. I might even go so far as to say, I don't know if I would want to let someone log in without two more pass keys or some alternative means, right? They could have an email address on right. file or they could have a password. But WebAuthn alone, because it's tied to that device right now with WebAuthn 2, is a little bit scary for a, you know, this is the only way in to an application. Yeah, so but with- nobody's a single device user at this point. I mean, I, honestly, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I guess there are parts of the world where maybe that's a thing. But, you know, some of the time I want to log in on my on my computer. Sometimes I want to use my phone. Sometimes I want to use my tablet. Sometimes I'm going to want to use, um, I don't know, you know, maybe the app actually has WebAuthn because it's built on Ionic or something, right? Which uses WebTech, um, and so it may have a separate deal than you know the website. And so, yeah, I can imagine, yeah, that being. Yeah, instead of it being, uh, hey, this is this user, it's, hey, this is this user with these devices. And so, yeah, what you're saying makes sense, but I think realistically you're going to have to solve for that anyway. That's true, although I will say that there are some accounts that I have that I don't use on my, that I don't use cross accounts. Yeah. Like some I do, but like if it's just a shopping site and I just want to like, you know, I'm always going to be shopping on my on my computer because I have, a lot of typing or whatnot but yeah i, I hear your point the, the the greater case is going to be something that you're going to want to make sure that you support yeah one other thing before i let aj jump in 
Um, how would this work then if I'm like, because sometimes I wind up in a browser, not often, but sometimes I wind up with, uh, in a browser on a device like my Apple TV or Amazon Fire Stick. How do you authenticate those? How do you authenticate them without web authentic? You use it. You probably it makes using, me use my phone. Yeah. yeah. So you probably would use your phone, and then it would just like delegate the use web authentic on your phone. The authentication. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. AJ, sorry. I okay. Just so, what, what? Because I I work with Dash Incubator, I am immediately extremely interested in how this could be used for cryptocurrency wallets because one of the, i mean they're way too technical it's it's too confusing it's too scary if you lose your 12 words then you lose all of your money you know that's Just really use ftx oh yeah too soon too soon you got sorry. it you got it no it's oh, oh I'll, I'll i'll pick the the breakdown video on that anyway um but but just it, and and not just that because I, I let's forget that I even said that because the core the core issue is not that the core issue is how do I as a non-technical person have a cryptographically secure seed that I can reproduce and that I don't have to remember and this sounds like if I get a couple of fido keys and I've got touch id on my macbook um as long as I continually set up whatever it is that requires that cryptographic seed on a new device when I get it. And I always have at least one device that, that has it, hopefully two, then I could do an N of M, um, you know, key type of thing where any of these three devices can unlock my seed. And that, that seems really, really interesting to me. So what you're saying is it's a crypto wall. Are these crypto wallets websites or let's, let's not use that word. Let's not use that word. Okay. A, a random seed. Yeah, okay. I, 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 sh I shouldn't have muddied the water by saying that because it's going to take people down in the wrong direction. The, the basic idea is I need to be able to generate a private key. I need to be able to generate the same private key every time. I need that private key to be, a pu to be public. I need it to be able to be on my Facebook, on my Twitter, on everywhere. So it needs to be encrypted. I need to be able to have a private key that I could give to every member of my family, all of my friends, put on my website, something that anybody could have. And that is the real whatever it is that accesses. It could be, you know, a home server. It could be a bank account. It could be a crypto wallet. It doesn't matter. But I need a private key that I can publish everywhere in the world and have everybody have access to it. But only I can decrypt it. But I need to be able to decrypt it by more than one means. And it sounds like this could give me a means by which with a with one of these, you know, with Touch ID or this key or something, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that WebAuthn has some sort of 32-byte random number associated with that, that. That's what I'm asking. That's, I'm sorry, I got so excited and my brain's just going all over the place. The question I'm asking is, is there a 32-byte random, random number associated with the WebAuthn login that would be suitable for cryptographic applications? With the WebAuthn login, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I'm yeah, I'm assuming it, it because... creates a user ID that yep. it sends to you, and yep. that user ID has some sort of probably time-based hash component so that you can't do a replay attack. So it probably it probably has a user ID, a nonce, 
a time yeah. component, and then some sort of secret. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically signed like so. So the way that it works is that the um, that there is a challenge, which is essentially the nonce. I don't think it's time based, um, although there may be some some. I know there are some time checks that happen in terms of how long you can have authenticated prompt. Um, but the secret is 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 held is the private key, right? Like this, you sign over the the data. And you previously provided your public key, so that's how the website knows that it's you going through that authentication process, is because it's checking the signature of the 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 data that's, that's come back. So I don't see where there's like a a thirty two bit kind of hanging around, um, but it's possible you could send down some data. But I, I guess you're still going to run into the issue of like. I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds to me like, why wouldn't you just have a central repository where you could have multiple different accounts log in and by proving that they've logged in, however they authenticate, but you don't care how they authenticate, then they get access to that secret key. Like why you need to like bring, I guess I don't know. No, it's gotta be encrypted. You can't, you can't put this stuff on a server where anybody, you know, willy nilly can just get access to it. No, no, it's gotta be secure. You you, no. No, put, putting putting something in, in plain text on any server is completely insecure, especially in the wake of all we know since Edward Snowden onward. Anybody in the government can have access to anybody's data on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google Drive at any time for any reason without any friction. So you're saying, how do I use the private key that is that is available on these authenticators on my Touch ID on um, a UV key or something like that? How do I use that to encrypt a value? and have that end of M transaction happen so that anybody with one or two of these things can decrypt it to get that, that, that special value. Is that what you want? Essentially? Well, uh, yes, but uh, it's, I'm, I overcomplicated it in what I was saying. Cause my brain was going hundred miles a minute. What I need to know is what entropy can I get out of this that nobody else can get? What amount of entropy can I get out of a, a web authen process that doesn't have to be stored on a server because it has to do with what happens on the FIDO key or in the touch ID or, you know, it's part of the operating system mechanism, not part of the server mechanism, part of the device and operating system mechanism. Because if I have that, then all the other stuff is just layers and that's easy to do. It's already solved. There's already libraries for it. It's just, I need entropy and I need to know that that entropy um exists between the the thing that i'm using and the operating system that ostensibly is not compromised sure don't got a great answer for you but i can i can ask i can ask the devs that'd be awesome Um, thanks yeah and we may just post some follow-up stuff uh, on top end devs in the comments or add some you know if you have get an answer put it in the show notes um, but yeah, for right now, um, yeah. And I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm actually gratified that you're willing to tell us you don't know something as opposed to try and make it up. Um, but yeah, so at the end of the day, then, um, it looks like this is something that is definitely worth a look. Um, are, are there good places that kind of walk people through web authen, what it, you know, how, how to put it in and how to you know, validate that it's working and doing what we expect. 
Sure. So, you know, I think the site that, um, there's kind of two sides, right? There's like the de- the the consumer facing side and then the developer facing side, and the site that AJ found, the webauthn.io, is a good one for consumer facing side. I've I've seen some other ones uh, as well. Uh, the Ubico folks have a pretty great guide that walks through kind of some of the nomenclature of webauthn because there's uh, some some words that are special jargon, like the, there's like a Instead of a workflow, it's a ceremony to authenticate and things like that. Uh, I think I I published a couple of articles, one on the FusionAuth.io website and then one on the Stack Overflow website, mm-hmm. which give kind of that high-level overview. And then as far as kind of implementation, I think you're going to want to find that library um, that we're going to do some digging around for. And I'll, you know, whether it's Next.js or, or Pure Node or, or whatnot, um, there's kind of two components of, of the developer side thing that you want to look for in terms of implementation. The first is generating the right uh, options for the JavaScript API because there's a number of options. Like you can say, hey, um, you know, you need to generate a uh, that nonce that we talked about or that one-time um, string. You need to uh, say, hey, do I want to allow, uh, I don't know whether we want to get this deep, this technical, but like you can, you, there's two types of authenticators. There are ones that are tied to a device and then there's ones mm-hmm. like, like Touch ID and then there are ones that you can move between devices like YubiKeys. And so you can actually say, hey, I, I don't want to authenticate um, for this authentication event. I don't want to use any pass keys that are tied to a YubiKey. I only want the ones that are tied to the Mac or vice versa. Um, and there's some other things like that. So you have to kind of generate those things correctly and understand those. And the spec is really good about that. And then there's the whole storing the, then there's the whole prompting process and storing the the public keys. And that is mm-hmm. something that is, there's a few libraries out there for that. I've seen them in Python. I'm sure they exist in JavaScript as well. But that's a whole separate set of things that aren't defined by the standard at all. That's just more like, okay, when do I prompt someone to uh, to sign up for a WebAuthn, you know, to give me their passkey? And when do I prompt them again? And how do I store that pass, you know, the the credentials that are given mm-hmm. to me? The pu- well, the, they're not credentials, sorry, they're, they're a public key, essentially, um, safely. And, and how do I prevent that UX to like give people the option to, opt to, to sign up with multiple passkeys? Things like that. And that I haven't seen as much standardization around. I want to lament that Google does not actually implement WebAuthn. Whatever it implements only allows FIDO keys. I can add Touch ID to my GitHub account. I'm assuming I can do that with my NPM account, which I'm trying to do right now. Cannot do it with my Google account. Totally pissed off. You need to personally go rag on Google to make them adopt this thing. Um, I'm counting on you, Dan. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I appreciate your trust. But um, when you say Google doesn't support that, like you're going to your personal Google account and you're saying, hey, I want to add WebAuthn and it doesn't support adding a passkey there? None of these call it WebAuthn or passkey. They call it security key or it's just under security as add 2FA. So under Google, it's okay. It's it's under security and then it's under two-step verification then it's under 
security key, which if you already have a security key, it will show up as if that's the option and there's no option to add it. But then if you <laughs> click on your existing security key, then it takes you to a security keys page where you have the add security key option. If you click that, then it will ask you if you want to do phone or physical key. And if you click physical key and next, it pops up and it then it goes through the browser's FIDO process, but it does not have the this device option for Touch ID. So my guess is that that is a situation, remember I talked about uh, the but you can differentiate whether you want to allow like a UB key or allow like a authenticator that's tied to a device. They may not just support that, right? And they may not support that for the reasons that we talked about, where if it's tied to my my Mac and my Mac gets busted, then suddenly I'm locked out of that or I can't use that key anymore. I'm not saying they should, but that to me is sounds what that's what that sounds like. Is that they uh, haven't done that. Except that I already have a key, so that's that's already debunked. But also, I had this problem yesterday on my phone. I I basically I just had to switch browsers because on one browser in Brave on my phone, it wasn't letting me log into my Google account. So I wanted to access uh, settings, mm-hmm. and it and it wanted me to two factor, and then I did my Authenticator two factor, and then it came back and wanted me to three factor. So I did my password, I did my two factor, and then the only options it gave me were. Um, insert a security key or use some other thing, which was probably related to Google's proprietary app that, you know, their own proprietary technology that they developed um, that's apart from WebAuthn that they have apps and, and hardware integration for. Um, and so, and, and on my phone, of course, I don't have a USB-C port right. uh, because it's iOS. And so I, I can't stick in my YubiKey anyway. So I had no way to log in to the to get to access these settings on my phone. Then I switched browser browsers and then I did the second factor authentication and then it just let me through. So I guess it liked Safari more than it liked Brave. Okay. Well I will I will I will call Google and I will give them your feedback, AJ. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Because I think it's <laughs> gonna mean a lot more coming from you than it will mean coming from me. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it. Okay, And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials 
on some thing for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. All right, well, um, I'm going to move us into uh, picks. AJ, I'll let you go first. What are your picks? I'm going to pick I'm going to pick that video about the whole FTX thing if I can find it. Um, but it it kind of explains how the whole thing is just a huge 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 sham because this is the guy if you remember a couple months back how there was this big market crash where somebody just dumped half a billion dollars in a single transaction and by doing that, it caused the, I mean, granted, it's all Ponzi scheme pyramid stuff anyway, so they're all at fault. But there was some sort of, um, I think the exchange was based out of Korea, but it was like the largest competitor to FDX other than Bitnami or whatever that other thing's called, Binance. Um, sorry, Bitnami, whatever you are. And uh, they, so anyway, but doing the, the half billion dollar dump, he, he probably had some insider information from somebody about how their algorithm worked and knew that if he dumped over a certain amount that it would cause their algorithms to go haywire and then collapse the market. Anyway, the dude is literally, 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 literally in bed with this SEC director's daughter. And so that's how they got the knowledge about how to set up everything in the Bahamas just right so that they can be completely shielded from any liability and... Now he's all buddy-buddy with the SEC saying, oh, well, it was just a, a mistake of risk. And so we need more government regulation to help poor people like me to not make such bad decisions. So the whole thing is just a big loop-de-loop of causing problems, making billionaires, and exploiting people's tax dollars and trying to make it so that the average people will never have a, a, a non-fiat digital currency uh, that is in that that can reach match, mass adoption. It is it is a it is a big huge and though it, again it's a conspiracy because it's literally different people who are you know they're clearly conspiring because they're you know when you when you dump half a billion dollars to shut down uh, somebody else's business I, that that is conspiracy. You you had to conspire with other people to arrange things to get the situation set up so that you could destroy their business, right? That that's what, that's what that is. That's not, that's not fair market play, uh, you know, anyway. So I'll, I'll find that video and then link it. Um, I'm super, super stoked that I can use touch ID with uh, GitHub and I will, I will find out momentarily if I can use um, touch ID with, uh, NPM, but I'm suspecting that I'll be able to. And so I'm really, really, really ecstatic about that. 
Um, oh, and I just did it. Yes, you can use Touch ID with NPM. So now I have my Touch ID is registered with NPM. Now the question will be, mm-hmm. is it Touch ID on different, is, is it different keyboards or is it just on the operating system level? I suspect it's the operating system level. Um, that's super exciting. And let's see. Is there anything else that I, that I can think of recently in terms of apps that I've used or just cool stuff? Um, I don't know. I've been, I've been really, oh, actually, no, I've got one other thing. So uh, Raspberry Pi is just not powerful enough to run Plex. And I, I actually, I can't quite pick this yet because I haven't run it through the paces because I just got it set up uh, on Saturday and I haven't really done much with it yet. But you can get a Dell Optiplex microcomputer, which I'm calling mine Microplex because that that's a, a, a quadruple on Tundra right there. Um, and it, it's 120 bucks. Um, actually, it looks like I, I bought one of the last ones, but I'm sure that they'll come back in stock again. So these, these micro Dell Optiplex microcomputers, I got the 7050, which my buddy told me was going to be enough to be able to do at least one stream of 4K um, transcoding on the fly. Uh, so I believe it's going to be at least, you know, good enough for 1080, which to be honest, you can't tell the difference between 1080 and 4K unless you're, you know, three feet from the screen. But anyway, um, so it, it's really cool that basically something that's are, that less than the cost of what a Raspberry Pi 4 is right now, probably sipping a little bit more power, but not much because everything I've got connected. And let me see what the, the kilowatt says right now. Anyway, I'm really I'm really glad that I'm going to be able to to. Um, get Plex working better because my wife's been complaining about it. Okay. I'm, I'm with like five computers and five monitors and, and a bunch of other stuff. I'm less than 200 Watts of power right now. So that thing's not, I think it's sipping, you know, 10 or 20 Watts or something. Um, but yeah, so now I can get, uh, my, my Plex set up to work better and then hopefully it won't be upsetting my wife when it has to buffer for 10 seconds before, being able to play it so um <laughs> first world problems the straight hey, the box in my house is too slow we we got to get our harry potter on right well you know outside of the first world they don't have this problem because they can buy a flipping dvd and expect it to work well i mean i guess we we still can but that's what i'm preparing for because in in mm-hmm. the near future you know you're not going to have access to anything that you didn't get on dvd and blu-ray you know, you're going to have access to it at the whims of whoever owns the rights to it that month. So. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, right, I felt that a few times, but yeah. Um, in- interestingly enough, you brought up Plex, and and I guess I will segue into my picks, but this wasn't something I was going to pick. I actually have my, uh, my dad's old computer here that uh, apparently has more than enough juice to run Plex, and so I was working on setting that up here, um, cause we've, I mean, over the years we bought hundreds of DVDs and CDs and, you know, anymore, we, we just want to stream stuff. And so, yeah, the idea behind having a media machine in the house that'll just do the stuff sounds terrific. Um, I just installed, um, Ubuntu on it and apparently you can run Plex on, on Linux. I was looking for uh, Windows, like to be able to install Windows, and 
I, I couldn't find a cracked version that I trusted uh, enough to install it. And it was like a hundred bucks or something or 150 bucks for a license for Windows 10. And I was like, no, you know, I, I want to do the project, but not that badly. So um, yeah, if it'll run nicely on Linux, I'll just, I'll just Linux the thing and, and let it rip. I may have questions for AJ though, as I get it set up, but uh, pretty, pretty happy and excited about that. Um, he is talking on mute, so I'm sure he's saying something brilliant. Oh, I was saying it's basically just copy and paste. Uh, yeah. Also, actually, no. There's one other thing that I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna retro pick now. Umbrel, Umbrel is has come onto my radar and uh, is now interesting to me. I think there's a lot of stuff they're getting right. I think there's a lot of stuff they're getting wrong, but uh, you can put Umbrel. You can, you can run a curl bash to put Umbrel on a system, and it seems like it's a series of Docker containers or something, and it will install self-hosted options as apps. So they have a self-hosted option of Uptime Robot, which you know somebody else creates. They just created the Docker container in the system by which it deploys and maps ports and all that right. so that you get a, you get a click-button Synology-like experience of installing uh, apps onto your Raspberry Pi or to something like the Optiplex or whatever yeah. and plex is one of those options so if you if you copy and paste for umbrell you can get a whole bunch of other stuff in addition to plex and plex is just click a button but plex is you know if you've already got it set up getting it set up on a new computer on linux is you just you just copy and paste and and then it goes yeah yep makes sense yeah and so that yeah then i just have to figure out how to you know rip the cds or you know or dvds if it's not a standard thing and then just stick it on there but Anyway, um, as far as the Dell Optiplex pick goes, um, I actually was in a little bit different position. So I was looking for computers for my kids. And in particular, um, they had some Chromebooks. And my 11-year-old has this penchant to throw fits and then throw things. And he had broken all of the Chromebooks except one. He's paying for it. Different. Another conversation. But Anyway, um, so we were looking for, you know, some cheaper option because the Chromebooks, you know, we either found them on like a surplus from a school or we, you know, so we didn't pay full price on them, but still like to replace them. It's, you know, unless we find another surplus deal, it's a hundred dollars a pop, give or take. So, um, yeah, I was looking on walmart.com and yeah, we found some machines that look a whole lot like these Dell Optiplexes that um, AJ's talking about. And they were like 70 bucks a piece and they have windows 10 on them. So they'll update, you know, we can run the security updates and stuff on them. And then the other part of that is, is that they're also up to date enough to where we can install, like my 11 year old really loves playing Roblox. And so we could put that on there and then I can sit down and play it with him. Um, and so just stuff like that. Right. Um, so that was a tremendous deal. I mean, they were, they were, uh, rehabbed, right. So somebody else had owned them and given them back to Walmart, but yeah, they were like 70 bucks a piece. And so that turned out to be a good deal. And it included the, um, the keyboard and mouse and everything else with it. I think the only thing I had to figure out was putting monitors on them and I have plenty of extra monitors around here. So that worked out. Um, another pick just alongside that is, and this is something AJ may be able to take advantage of, but I'm sure there are other similar deals out there. 
is um, so the the local university BYU they actually have a surplus that they sell all their surplus IT stuff off, and so you can get. I mean, obviously it's not top of the line because they're selling it off, but you can get all kinds of stuff. You can get projectors, you can get computers, you can get TVs, you can, all of their stuff goes through there. I think the last email I got from them was taxidermy, right? And so uh, they'd had a whole bunch of taxidermy animals that they were, you know, surplusing. So, but but usually it's technology and office furniture. And so um, I've never needed 100 chairs, which is usually what they're doing with the chairs. But you can go pick up a desk. You can go pick up, a, like I said, a computer or a projector or whatever. And you can get it for a pretty darn good deal. So, um, you know, and it's just whatever they have. So you, you're not always seeing what you want. But you just go to surplus.byu.edu if you're here in Utah. Um, and then I'm sure there are other there are other places. Um, the local school district also tends to surplus stuff, but they tend to do it in, um, uh, what's the word for a big batch? Um, they do it by the pallet, kind of. And so it's like, you can get a killer deal on Chromebooks, but you have to buy 100 of them, right? Um, and I'm trying to remember where they surplus their stuff. Um, so I'll look that up in a second and, and give you the website for that. But that website services organizations like that from all over the U.S. And so if you're looking for surplus stuff, uh, the furniture, they tend to sell off one at a time unless it's, you know, like chairs or, you know, something that you would want a lot of. But yeah, they, they've had pretty decent deals on those. Some of the stuff's not worth buying, but you can browse through it. And they also have like books and, and lots of things like that. So uh, I'm going to pick that. Um, AJ got me going on all this st other stuff. Uh, the thing I usually start with is a board game. And we are heading into Christmas. And so, of course, you know, I, I know people are doing like Advent of Code. Um, but one of our friends gave us an Advent calendar. Um, this, the one we're going through is the one from two years ago. Um, but it's an escape room game uh, calendar. And we're, we're doing it with the kids. And they're, they're having a good time going through it with us. Um, it's called Exit the Game Advent Calendar. Um, and I'll put a link to, to it in the show notes, but effectively, um, what it is, is you open a door. Uh, so, you know, like you do on a regular advent calendar and what we, what we get is we, so we read the story. We, it tells us to open the door, we pull the cards out and then we have to solve the puzzle in order to find the next door. And so, um, you're trying to find three numbers and if you get the right three numbers in the right order, then what you do is you flip the the thing where you dial the numbers in over and it gives you direction. So it's like up and to the right, up and to the left, down one. And then um, it, it also has shapes on it so you can check and make sure you got the right door, right? Just based on those directions. And so um, you get to check your work and then that's the door you open next time. And my kids have really enjoyed it. Um, they haven't been too terribly difficult to figure out. I um, mean, they do have hints that you can you can check in the other booklet. So one's the story booklet and the other one's the hints. Um, and if you, you know, the first is just kind of a, a more generic hint. The second one's a little more specific. And the third one's like the actual solution, like how you solve it. And so, you know, if, if you're getting stuck, you're not going to stay stuck. But uh, anyway, it, it's been really fun. They've been enjoying it. Uh, Board Game Geek rank, uh, weights it at 
So it's pretty approachable to anybody who likes, you know, playing games, stuff like that. So uh, that's that's my board game pick. Um, I'm also excited about our book club. Um, looks like Bob Martin's going to be able to make it to most of these. Um, and it's clean architecture. We're doing clean architecture starting on Wednesday. Uh, I started it already. Time. I love it. Yeah. So wanna, we're going to be. I might we're join be, in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you have a membership, either a top end devs membership or just the book club membership, then you can jump in with that. But I am excited to be talking about it. Um, and yeah, we're, we're getting all that stuff together. And then um, I've been talking to some folks about, um, you know, some of the stuff. So like I had some people whose employer bought them access to like a, one of the conferences or something. And, you know, they're like, we didn't get the email. And, you know, some of it, I hadn't set it up to send out an email in those particular circumstances, realized I needed to. And uh, I've been using Spark Post for that, and I really like it. So I'm going to pick Spark Post um, as an email provider. Um, part of the issue is I, I've just, I've had issues with SendGrid. That's the one that uh, I think most people use. Um, mostly just getting support. Right. If I run into something, they, they just haven't been great. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm going to pick Spark Post. And uh, one last thing that I'm going to just shout out about is um, if you're trying to run a business. So for a while back, I switched over to Hey.com for my email. And I was using Hey.com and I really like it. There are a lot of things I really like about Hey.com. But the issue is, is that doing any kind of automated anything with it, you know, outside of the couple of automations they built into it, it, it's impossible. And, you know, if I'm trying to reach out to sponsors or uh, conference speakers or podcast guests or anything like that, um, I went and I set things up in Podio so I could do a lot of that stuff. And Podio does a good job of a good chunk of it. But it was still, it was just this hassle because it's not right there in my inbox. And so I've gone back to Google um, and I've I've been using Gmailius again. And so I'm going to pick those. I'm going to pick Google Mail. Um, you know, mine's on a domain. Um, and I don't, I'm not in love with their, them, but, you know, it allows I'm, me to do the other stuff because everything integrates with it. And I'm then still looking G, for Gmailius. Yeah, there's just, it 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 stinks if it if any of these would build an uh, automation to something other than Google or Microsoft because Outlook.com most of them integrate with that too. Um, I'd probably switch to that, but none of them are doing it. So anyway, uh, those are those are my picks. Dan, do you have some shout outs picks? I do. Uh, so. I'm late to the game here, but I actually just watched the Station Eleven miniseries uh, off of HBO, and it was—I think it was HBO. It was amazing. So Station Eleven is like kind of a post-pandemic dystopian apocalyptic book, and they did a phenomenal job with this ten-part uh, series. It's kind of a one-and-done, turning the book into a into a miniseries. But uh, I really, really enjoyed the characterization. I enjoyed the affirmation of life. I enjoyed. The mystery uh and i think i have not read the book yet but i actually just got the book and i'm planning to read it but i think they did a fantastic job with that so loved station 11 now you may not want 
any kind of pandemic uh, uh, literature, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, maybe you want to cut that part. I don't know. Um, and then uh, I also want to dive into the Webassin level three spec. So I've, I kind of mentioned that a couple of times in this podcast. I think that it is phenomenal that they're going to do another round and smooth out some of the edges. But um, so I'm excited to dig into that. So those are kind of my picks. Awesome. Um, if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you? Sure. So if you want to learn more about FusionOS or WebAuthn or OWASP, OIDC in general, you can go to FusionAuth.io. If you want to find out more about what I think and uh, some of my thoughts about technology and society and, and other things in general, like, you know, what Twitter's for, as you said, Charles, um, you can find me on Twitter at moreds.com. That's M-O-O-R-E, D is in Daniel, S is in Sam. And I talk about OAuth and OIDC and technology. And then I also had a, my most recent poll was, what do you think about persimmons? Or have you had tried a persimmon? Because I actually had one and it was pretty enjoyable. Actually, that, that should be, maybe I want to take a page out of AJ's book. That's a retro pick. I think persimmons are a delightful fruit and I'm looking forward to doing more with persimmons. Hurrah. I don't think I've ever even seen one. So It looks like an orange tomato on the outside and a spiced apple on the inside. And it tingles your mouth. It's the weird, it's the one of the, or at least the one I had. Apparently there are multiple different varieties that you can you can buy. So. I, I think it's how ripe it is. I think the more ripe it is, the less it tingles. But I could be mistaken. Awesome. I've I've had some other stuff that tingled my mouth, but I, I've had I've had some stuff that numbed my mouth. And and I, I still don't understand why people enjoy that. I mean it it wasn't it was a little bit weird, but it wasn't unpleasant. I just I don't know. Anyway. Uh, thanks for coming, Dan. And uh, thanks for showing up, AJ. We'll uh, jump off. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.